welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. We're also thrilled to have back on the show our man in Shanghai, uh, Tendai Musakwa, who you may know from our website, ChinaAfricaProject.com. He's also on our Facebook at Facebook.com uh, slash ChinaAfricaProject. Tendai does some amazing translations of Chinese social media on China Africa affairs. Good evening to you, Tendai. Good evening. And Tendai, of course, is in Shanghai, who is doing his Ph.D. at uh, Fudan University. So let's get started very quickly. As always, we're going to talk about three issues, three topics, kind of break them down, hash them out, and then we post this clip up on Facebook and love to hear your feedback. Uh, this week, it's been a rather slow week, actually, in the space, unlike last week where we had a lot to talk about. So we had to kind of dig a little bit. Uh, but one issue kind of stood out uh, above them all, and, uh, and this is not a repeat program. I repeat, this is not a repeat program, but we're going to talk about ivory and elephants and China's role in the ivory trade. A number of very prominent publications this week uh, came out with some uh, some exposés and some reporting on this that generated a lot of buzz on Twitter and on Facebook, and we'll talk about that. Then we're going to go on to um, to Rio Tinto, and that is the, the troubled Australian mining company that has, uh, you know, run into problems in Mozambique and Tendai coming from Mozambique will shed some light on that. Uh, and really it talks about this story. What's interesting about the Rio story is how it sheds a lot of light on the new rules of the game, uh, both in terms of doing business in Africa and also China's role in the world. And we'll talk about that. So finally, we're going to end on uh, a very interesting story, actually. And it's one that's coming up that we're kind of doing a preview of an upcoming UN arms treaty that will really have an impact on China. And then we'll talk about Chinese arms sales in Africa. Africa as it relates to some of the other big players that are there, too. So Chinese weapon sales will be our third topic. Kobus, let's get right started off the top. Uh, you know, you said when in our pre-show, you know, we're just kind of getting, you know, it's hard to say we're getting tired of talking about the, the ivory issue because it is such an important issue. Uh, but this week, you know, because it just it, it doesn't seem to change. But this week there were a couple little new wrinkles in, in, the, in, the, in the debate. First, the, the Chinese ambassador to Kenya uh, said, that they would support the Kenyan Wildlife Service's uh, efforts to, 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 to crack down on poaching. Uh, and then Beijing, and he also defended Beijing, and he denied that China is soft on, on enforcement of illegal ivory. And then we, we also saw a front-page article in the New York Times, which always gets Americans riled up, both in the policy sector as well as in the public. And finally, National Geographic uh, came out with, uh, or at least surfaced on the web, on the Huffington Post and elsewhere, uh, with a documentary that was kind of very, very revealing about about ivory. So ivory made the headlines this week. What what caught your attention? Well, I think one of the reasons that all of this is, is happening right now is um, not only because the the massive increase in poaching, but also because the UN's um, Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species yearly meeting is starting in Bangkok tomorrow. So. The- that is the meeting that that regulates all trade in endangered species products, um, and um, you know, kind of, and, and big big decisions get made there. Um, and so everyone, I think, is jumping in to try and sway that that process um, towards you know, kind of more protection or and and raising different ways of trying to. Pre- protect um, elephants, um, particularly seeing that, that there's a blossoming of, of, of ivory trade to, you know, to 
Asia generally, but to China particularly. Let's talk about that UN treaty because that is absolutely central to this story. Uh, it's known as, I think I'm saying it right, as the CITES Treaty, C-I-T-E-S. Uh, and the New York Times in their reporting, as well as the National Geographic in its reporting, um, can come out and say that the CITES Treaty is one of the main reasons why uh, illegal ivory is flourishing today because the CITES, at the core of the CITES Treaty was the release of le- legal legitimate ivory that was, you know, there was a stockpile before the treaty. They thought if we sell this, it'll take the demand away from the illegal market. What it's actually done is given cover for poachers and for illegal traders to say, well, everything is legit. And Chinese, you know, unscrupulous Chinese business people are, are faking the IDs and saying this is actually legal and legitimate. So do you think there's going to be uh, at this upcoming sites, you know, conference, do you think there will be a, a, any pressure to maybe back off of the the legal sale of ivory and just ban all the sale outright? Or do African states continue want to continue selling their stockpiles of supposedly legal ivory? I think it, I think it definitely depends on which African state you talk to. South African Botswana sit, is, are sitting on, on, at the same time, massive stockpiles of, of legally, not uh, legally um, hunted ivory, in this case, um, you know, kind of from resulting from, from coals to, to, to control populations. Um, and the, and at the same time, they have budget troubles trying to, to maintain the national park. So they're very interested in using that money. Um, in Kenya um, and other, uh, towards the DRC, um, you literally just see elephant populations just plummeting. So you have this weird population where, weird problem where in, in southern Africa, you have too many elephants, and in, in Central Africa, you have not enough. Um, and so that, that's the one massive problem. Um, the other problem is, um, particularly in, as it relates to rhino horn, is the, the problem of whether you're facing the same kind of logic that is that made the war on drugs, uh, you know, a, a big failure in America, in the sense that the very fact that cocaine is illegal makes it incredibly expensive, and for the, and for that reason, very worthwhile smuggling. So it's the same, I mean, you know, so, so there was recently a paper published, I think in Nature, or like arguing that legalizing the rhino horn trade and particularly, um, you know, re- removing the rhino horns, um, y- you know, in, in, a, in a humane way that doesn't kill the rhino would actually, and so in a sense, farming rhinos for their horns um, is actually the better way. You know, and it's a very similar kind of argument to people who, are, who talk about the, the, um, the legalization of marijuana in America, saying that people are sitting in jail simply because marijuana is valuable because of the ban. So I think it's, it's one of these, it, it, it goes to the, the very basis of how you're supposed to, to regulate these things. Tendai, let me come to you on this, and let's take the, the drug parallel that uh, that Cobus brought up here and this this idea that you know making something illegal making it you know is what forces the price and forces the demand the the one point that I might disagree with on Cobus on this front is that there is a general consensus that heroin should be illegal most of the world agrees that heroin is a bad thing or cocaine is a bad thing I mean there are a couple outlying exceptions but for the most part that is a consensus um, you know but in China where you are, um, there is not a consensus that buying ivory is a bad thing. Uh, certainly in the West and in many countries, it's considered horrific to buy a piece of ivory. But in China, it's widely accepted and, in fact, valued. Um, and so so I guess, Tendai, you know, what do you do when there's this huge cultural gap between, you know, Africa, who may or may not 
you know, have strong opinions on the elephants. We talked, Kobus, you said earlier that, you know, there's a lot of resentment towards elephants on the part of rural farmers who, who, are, who struggle to, you know, who struggle to contain the impact of elephants. Uh, and in China, there's a lot of, uh, of demand for the products, and they don't necessarily care or know where it comes from. So, Tendai, how do you reconcile these big cultural differences, do you think? Yeah, it's a really hard uh, sort of uh, issue to to deal with because, like you said, part of this is cultural. Ivory has a long history in Chinese culture, and it is difficult to change people's attitudes. At the same time, uh, as Corpus mentioned, um, there's a wide variation in the number of elephants in, in countries across the African continent, um, from countries like South Africa, which which has an overpopulation of elephants, to Gambia, where elephants are now extinct. So I think, um, in my opinion, the current um, the current uh, sort of science framework uh, is working well because, uh, according to the current framework, um, elephant trade in, in, in ivory and ivory products is banned across Africa, except in um, in, in Botswana, Zimbabwe. Um, uh, Namibia and, and South Africa with, with this elephant overpopulation. So from the perspective of, of these, uh, the governments of these four countries, um, sort of elephants compete with agriculture in terms of land, land use. So if they can sell that ivory, um, then they can get some economic value from from, from elephants and, and that helps in in, in in, con- uh, in conservation efforts. And um, also, like you mentioned, human-elephant sort of conflict is a serious problem in, in these four countries because elephants destroy crops and, and, and property and injure people. So there's increasing uh, political pressure from these um, farmers and rural communities to get rid of elephants. And the only way these southern African uh, governments see to mitigate this pressure is to cull elephants and then uh, use the money they gain from the sale of ivory to compensate people who have suffered damage from um, damage by elephants. So let me let me bounce you know a theory off you as well. Is that I, I really believe that this issue more than any other China Africa issue has the ability to mobilize the West and get the West interested in China, Africa. I don't think the West, you know, the average person on the street in in the U.S. or Europe is that concerned about, you know, China's non-intervention policy as it may relate to corporate governance, civil society programs, human rights violations. I think they could go to sleep every night not worrying about that at all. But the thought that the future of the elephant species depends on policies in Beijing and China's determination to enforce its own customs enforcement laws. And the fact is that if China does not crack down, the very future existence of the elephant remains in question. And, and that's, that's my assessment, but uh, I think that's increasingly becoming the, 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 the widely held consensus given the fact that demand in China is surging, the militarization of the poachers is, is, is intensifying, uh, and the elephants really just don't stand a chance in the long run. Okay. Now, let me turn Tendai to you, our, our Facebook page. Susan Barrett says, this 
has nothing to do with, quote, cultural tradition and everything to do with greed. What is wrong with people, she says in caps. And then Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Pullen, she says, this is so shocking. What a disgusting nation. And you hear that kind of, that energy in their tone. And, and this is what mobilizes in the West. You know, the West has, uh, you know, has, has, has soured relationships with Japan over whaling. Uh, it has, you know, it has, you know, Dumbo as a way of capturing the imagination. Do you think there's a sense in China at all that this is a passionate issue that could potentially complicate China's foreign relations, not only in Africa, but with the rest of the world? There is increasing awareness in China that um, poaching is an issue. So in the New York Times article uh, that they published yesterday, um, the owner of an ivory goods store in China said that he hangs up a license to give his customers peace of mind that all of the ivory that he sells was obtained legally. So I think that shows that there is awareness among the Chinese that poaching is an issue and illegal ivory trade is an issue. But at the same time, um, I think African governments should also be involved in this. And as I mentioned earlier, African governments sort of see this in terms of economic value. If there's an overpopulation of elephants, then um, agriculture suffers. So they see it as an issue of um, sort of economy. The wildlife must provide economic value in terms of tourism or in cases where there is an overpopulation, they have to count that to get um, sort of money from, from, from the sale of, of ivory. It is also important to, I think, to keep in mind that the African elephant is actually not endangered in terms of like Africa as a whole. In 2004, it was moved from the International Union for the Conversation or for the Conservation of Nature's list of endangered species onto its vulnerable list. And this is due to a number of factors, but uh, one of the most um, one of the major factors why it was moved to the vulnerable list instead of the endangered uh, list was that uh, this. The, is that there's this overpopulation of, of, of elephants in, in, in southern Africa. And this has been increasing since, um, since, since the turn of the century, by the way. So there is actually more elephant population in southern Africa. Well, than- you know, Kobus Tendai here is complicating the issue for us because, on, you know, on the one hand, you see the Western reaction from a lot of people, particularly in reaction to these New York Times articles. And by the way, the New York Times has a series on their website called The Price of Ivory. And if you just go under the Africa section of their world news, you'll see this. And it's a whole series of articles. It's fantastic. Uh, they Then the latest one, the, the best article, the best line in it was the trail of blood from the African savanna to, to, to China. And so they, they really kind of get gory and, and detailed about it. But Kobus, as Tendai is kind of pointing out, this is a, a very complicated issue, not only, as we said, culturally with the Chinese, where there is growing awareness, but there's also intense corruption, but also in Africa, where each country has a different relationship with the elephant, and the elephant itself is actually not on the endangered list, as, as, as Tendai pointed out. So what are the politics here? How do we... Is there a solution to this problem? Or if ivory is going for fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 for a husk, uh, what, what happens? I mean, if the demand is just too high, does the elephant actually stand a chance? 
Um, yeah, it's it's an incredibly difficult situation, um, and the the kind of super emotional responses that you that you've been quoting from the West, in my mind, doesn't help. Among other reasons, because it's very easy to be you know outraged and. Dis- Disgusted by by other cult other, uh, other countries' culture, but I think there's there's a very strong and interesting kind of way to, to compare this, and this is the American love of diamonds. You know, um, the you know the col- ivory um, carving and ivory gift giving is a culture that goes back in China for centuries. Um, the, the the American demand for diamonds as engagement rings is less than a hundred years old, and it was pretty much the, the, um, you know created by De Beers in in the American market. Yet, if you now tell Americans that for, you know, because um, of environmental and human rights implications, um, they are now not allowed to have diamond rings for their, you know, kind of when they when they get married anymore. Can you imagine the chaos and hysteria? Oh, well, let's you know? not even talk about, so it's, you know. It's, it's very easy. Yeah. Well, I'm just, just to pick up on your point, let's not talk about electronics and the, the minerals that come out of the, the mines in the DRC. Uh, there's so many different, I mean, you picked up, I'm so glad you brought this up because for me, it's very selective outrage. Because on the one hand, they're willing to, to go to the mat with their outrage over the elephant. But on the other hand, as you've said, you know, the gold mining, the diamond mining, uh, not to mention the corruption bred by oil and all of the electronics minerals, uh, you know, don't get a pass. And, and people consume, you know, without any consequence. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, at the same time, oil and electronics, they have an objective use. Diamonds and ivory only have symbolic use. You know, they're, they're only, the only reason why... Why diamonds, the ivory, are valuable is because they're symbolic of human relationships, and so you know, kind of, I find it slightly difficult to understand how, on the one hand, like Westerners can be so dismissive of the kind of social relationships created by ivory in China, and yet value their own social relationships, their own marriages and engagements created by diamonds or symbolized by diamonds at the same time, without you know seeing without seeing the power. Par- Parallels between the two. Hey, Tendai, let me ask you about the reaction. I mean, I'm going to take off your China hat now and put on your uh, your your Zimbabwe, your Mozambique, Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe, yeah. Zimbabwe hat. Okay. Um, when you see Americans, you know, or Westerners, I don't even know if they're Americans, but Westerners with that kind of outrage that I read you on Facebook, do you, do you kind of think? And I'm going to put a leading question here to you. Do you kind of think of like, well, wait, what? What what the f? I mean, like you guys consume so much. You guys are basically driving global warming. You guys have a small population, and yet, can, you know, output of pollution is completely disproportionate. And here you are getting pissy with us about you know a particular you know species management. Is there any kind of like indignant indignant reaction on the part of people in in, in Zimbabwe on on this type of uh, you know reaction from the West on on you know, on things like ivory. Yeah, I think there definitely is some anger at the hypocrisy, like like you and Kobus mentioned. But but I, I don't think people in Zimbabwe support the wanton killing of of of, of, uh, of wildlife. But I think that um, this idea that should, there should be like a wholesale ban on on ivory sales in in African countries just um, it doesn't work because. There's different elephant populations in different countries in in Africa, and preventing ivory cells in countries that have an overpopulation will not save sort of um, elephants elsewhere. 
So there is a causal link between the, the sale of Southern African ivory and elephant poaching elsewhere. Uh, if, if I think if, if, if ivory is, um, if, if, if trade in ivory is, is done in a sort of um, regulated manner, then um, that can prevent uh, poaching in, 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 in areas where there is overpopulation. Do, do you happen to know, and, and Kobus, I'll put this out to you as well, you know, is it possible to actually extract the ivory without killing the elephant? I mean, to saw off the... The, the ivory without, or is it necessary to kill the elephant in order to get the most ivory out? Um, I'm not sure whether it's physically um, physically possible, but I think the problem is that the elephants actually use those tusks in their daily lives. You know, kind of so they, they tend to use them to to uh, rub off bark from trees and as part of, of courtship behavior and so on. So um, even even if you it's possible to extract the ivory without killing the elephant, you are disrupting elephant social life and right. elephant feeding and so on when you when you remove the tusks. Well, it's a truly depressing topic, um, but actually not as depressing now that I hear, you know, the perspective from Tendai and Kobus. Um, but the, the kind of Western part of me, which is, you know, just adores these animals and, and just thinks that, you know, that the, the mass killing. And if you look at the, the excellent reporting that the New York Times has done, however, the New York Times, to be, you know, slightly critical, has not kind of fleshed out the, 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 the nuance that we've heard t- today from, from Tendai and from Kobus. It, it's definitely from a, a Western perspective. Uh, nonetheless, uh, highly recommend their reporting. Also, if you go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, you'll see a link to not only the New York Times coverage, but also to the National Geographic. And the National Geographic videos are very interesting because they take people inside China to the stores and where, again, you see this huge culture gap and where, you know, people like Susan Barrett on our website are, are very dismissive of it, you know, calling it greed when, in fact, as Kobus points out, it, the traditions go back, you know, centuries, if not thousands of years of using ivory. Um, and so I think it's far more complicated than just greed. And, 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 and the National Geographic videos really highlight that out. So um, highly recommend you check those out. Kobus, I suspect that this is going to be a topic that we will have sooner than later again because it is one that keeps catching people's attention and really does highlight the intersection of the West with China and Africa because this is an issue that people are very focused on. Well, let's move on now to our second topic, and it's about arms. And and, and there is a connection to weapons in part because one of the aspects of the poaching business that the New York Times has talked about is the fact that they are much more militarized than before. In fact, I think they were talking about how the Ugandan uh, army is being involved in poaching and corrupt uh, elements within their their military forces, and they're using heavy weapons against these animals. Uh, So the control of arms actually does have an impact on the environment. Kobus, there is a, a UN treaty that's coming back up for discussion this summer. This was a UN treaty on arms control and cross-border sales of arms that was defeated largely by the United States as it would not pass through the U.S. Senate for ratification, in part because the National Rifle Association, which has been in the news quite a bit these days uh, after the Newtown killing, uh, kind of made the link saying that a U.N. treaty would have an impact on Americans' right to their Second Amendment rights to own guns. Uh, Of course, U.N. treaties have no impact on American law. Uh, 
but this again highlights the stupidity of the American political system as it exists today. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, they're going to try again. And this may have an impact on China, in part because China is becoming an increasingly enthusiastic arms dealer, uh, particularly in Africa. Kobus, tell us a little bit more about this. Yes, so the, um, the arms trade treaty negotiation is coming up in late March in New York, um, and the, it, it it was um, it was kicked down the road um, last July um, by mostly by the Obama administration um, due to pressure from Congress um, and you know so the National Rifle and Rifle Association raised these concerns that it would affect um, affect you know kind of Americans' right to to. Act- actually have the guns that they want. Um, meanwhile, the American Bar Association has, has released a white paper saying that it actually would have no effect on domestic gun rights because it, the treaty looks at, at uh, rules governing the, the export of arms across borders and particularly forcing countries to, to, um, to set, set in motion mechanisms to, um, to make sure that guns, and also including small arms, actually don't get sent to countries that are going to use them for human rights abuses. Um, one of the issues how it relates to China is that, or even though China is still a relatively small player um, in the world, world arms trade. Um, the problem is, is that no one knows how many arms China is exporting. They don't know where it, it's going. And every now and then you get one, one of these UN reports saying that, oh, we found Chinese writing on shell casings that were used in the DRC or in Sudan or Somalia. Um, you know, kind of, so there seems to be some Chinese arms flowing to Africa, but there's no way to make sure that people report how, how many and what well, just to emphasize your point, that um, we, and this this kind of treaty is is will be a first step to force them. And, and just to emphasize your point that we don't ahead, sorry. we don't know exactly where Chinese arms are going. Uh, there were there was a seizure of Chinese weapons making their way from Iran to Yemen today, uh, and and that really highlights. And these were anti aircraft, uh, very sophisticated anti aircraft uh, weapons called the QW one M. And of course, we don't know if these weapons are being sold by the state owned Chinalco uh, weapons dealers uh, or if they are being sold by uh, you know third parties that have no connection to the Chinese state. What we do know is that in Africa, uh, in places like like uh, Zimbabwe, uh, particularly to China's old friends, uh, China has been a very enthusiastic arms supporter. Um, you, you know, Tendai, what I find interesting here is that there's a lot of attention paid on, on China's weapon sales in Africa. But in fact, China's weapon sales in Africa are, are infinitesimal compared to the U.S.'s overall sales. Why is it that you think that the, the Chinese capture people's imagination when the United States and its arms sales, uh, particularly to countries like Egypt, uh, you know there was a lot of uh, you know objection this past in the past 2011 to the uh, uh, in during the Arab Spring when they saw the canisters coming from the United States, and that's really an exception. But for the most part, the United States and the West does get a pass in terms of its arms sales in Africa. While there is quite a bit of criticism towards the Chinese, what do you think is behind that? I think it's this um, sort of uh, red scare that there is. Um, China is still seen as being a communist country that is um, sort of uh, antagonistic to the U.S. and the West. So like you said, I think the U.S. provided the Egyptian government under Hosni Mubarak with billions of dollars of fighter jets, tanks, uh, missiles, and other arms. That regime was infamous for human rights abuses. 
but no one ever said anything about that. Yeah, it's, it, to me, it's a very interesting, you know, contradiction, and, and it also extends itself to the broader U.S. military relationship across Africa. That the United States more and more sees Africa as a military outpost. Uh, you know, status of forces agreements are being signed with. I think it was Mali in light of what's happened there. You see the French relationship with Mali. I may be incorrect, but it was recently uh, a status of forces agreement signed in West Africa. But the United States is, is building more bases, launching more drones, uh, exporting more weapons, and yet it just doesn't seem to be the response. And yet what's interesting, Tendai, on our Facebook page, one of the reactions that we see from, you know, I don't know if they're common people or at least Facebook users, is this whole Africa for Africans. Foreigners get out. Uh, so how do you reconcile, again, I'm going to put another contradiction to you, this kind of Africa for Africans, this pan-Africanist type of sentiment that people have, and yet uh, the, the increased militarization of the continent by the outside powers. The involvement of the West in, 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 in places like Mali and, and, and other places in, in, in North Africa is more of a recent phenomenon, but this, um, the South-South cooperation that um, China and African countries have had has a long history uh, dating back from the 1950s when China gave its support to revolutionary independence movements in Africa. So in terms of, I don't think many people see, many African people see a contradiction uh, between, um, uh, a contradiction between this pan-African movement and their relations with with China. Um, China offers an alternative to the West um, for, for African countries that want to meet their security needs and it has been doing this for a very long time so it's, it is unclear why China would want to stop now and going back to the treaty it, it is hard to see to evaluate whether or not China will sign the treaty it, it might do so in order to boost its image as a responsible power but I think that um, it, it might see restrictions on, on arms sales as interference in its, in its affairs. A couple statistics to kind of put some context on this. The United States, between the years 2007 and 2011, uh, supplied 30% of all the conventional arms exports worldwide. This is, of course, quoting the, uh, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, which is effectively the kind of the, it's an independent think tank, which kind of puts out the benchmark statistics. Russia did 24%, and uh, the top five tar- arms exporters together supplied 75%. China is not part of that top five exporting countries. So uh, it's relatively small. What uh, There's an organization in London called Safer World, and it's saferworld.co.uk, and they put out a report a couple years ago, and Kobus, this is what I'd like to get your, your feedback on, that it's not about the size of the arms sales that matter, in part because the most damaging, devastating weapons for, for, the, for civilians are, are, of course, not the big helicopters and the, the F-16 fighter jets and all of those big things that make up the U.S., what they largely sell. It, it's that anti-personnel mine that's plastic. It's the, the AK-47. It is the, the small arms uh, that are devastating uh, populations across Africa and devastating not only in Africa but other countries as well. 
well. China is really pushing that envelope much more. And I guess maybe for me, that's why the Chinese deserve a little more scrutiny, because the weapons that they are selling have a disproportionate impact on civilians. Yeah, like it's, I, I completely agree. And, you know, it's... You, I, only need to sell a few of these to, to create a lot of problems, you know. Um, so, you know, cluster munitions is a good example. Only a few cluster bombs need to be sold in order to, to ruin a country for a long time. Um, and so you have small producers like, you know, the, the two that I saw cited in one report was Spain and South Korea, who sell cluster munitions. And those those little bomblets lie around in these in third world countries, blowing the legs of children for decades to come. So, um, you know, a, a similar kind of argument is made um, in, in, you know, part of these this kind of arms trade treaty negotiations that there is um, the need to register ammunition, not only the guns, but to actually find a way to register and be, make ammunition traceable, and then, but then at the same time, the U.S. government has already said that they're going to be they're going to be opposing that. So, yeah. you know, Tendai, just to get back to your point on this, this getting to the selective outrage, you know, it pisses me off that the United States represents thirty percent of the world's arms sales, uh, and yet where's the outrage on that? There's no no one on Facebook is screaming that you know the United States should do more to contain the amount of weapons going into Africa. Instead, there's no pass on it. So, in, to me, me, it's kind of, you know, getting excited about the elephants is one thing, but these anti-personnel mines, the cluster munitions, the AK-47s, the handguns are causing far more damage uh, than almost anything else that we can see in, in big parts of Africa. That is definitely true. There's a lot of hypocrisy here. Well, one thing also that I think is interesting is that um, some people say that um, arms imported from China used to fuel sort of political violence in African countries, and that claim has been um, sort of uh, made in, in regard to Zimbabwe. What people uh, don't really uh, sort of bear in mind is that Zimbabwe's domestic arms production capabilities historically and now have been very limited. So the the, the Zimbabwe has been importing arms from China for a very long time. And um, in fact, like data from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute shows that from 2000 to 2009, when political violence spiked in Zimbabwe, um, Zimbabwe imported much lower volumes of arms um, from China. So I think there's really no evidence to, to support the, the claim that um, arms from China um, sort of... Um, Increase political violence uh, in, in African countries. In Zimbabwe, actually, what what the political thugs in Zimbabwe don't usually kill their opponents, but rather sort of beat them up or abuse them in some other form in order to intimidate them. So I think um, in, in in thinking about some of these issues, um, it's it's useful to have actual hard data on. Yeah. on, on what happens. And context is also very important. So understanding the broader context that, and again, I don't, I'm just going to put a disclaimer out here. It, it, none of us on the show are, are saying anything to defend the Chinese. That's not what anything, what we're saying. I think what we're saying, and, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, is that context is very important, that when you have one and two countries selling, you know, well, the top five countries selling 75%, and China is not part of that, then directing your ire towards China, it seems to me, you know, not pointing 
pointing your gun in the right direction. So um, that 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 to me is the problem on that side. That said, China should be held accountable for its weapon sales. And to Kobus's point on this, that there is no transparency in China's uh, arms shipments, and we just don't know. And so I hope through the UN process that we can at least get some type of figures out of the Chinese as to what they're selling and who they're selling it to, although I am very, very skeptical. Okay, let's move on now to our third topic, and, and this is a very interesting one. Uh, this goes, uh, and, and this is where we're going to kind of tap Tendai as well on for his expertise on Zimbabwe, but really focuses around a deal that the Australian mining company, the mining giant Rio Tinto, tried to do a deal in, 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 uh, in Zimbabwe that really focused on... It's, sorry, Eric, it was, it was in Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique. I'm, to- I'm totally sorry, in, in Mozambique. Uh, and, yeah. in, and really focusing on this Zambezi River, where, which was one of the main arteries that they were going to export coal out of. Now, during the process of the deal, uh, and Kobus, I'm going to let you kind of give a little more detail here, but during the process of the deal, the Chinese kind of swept in and, and booted Rio out. And what it says is a lot more... The deal itself, who cares? But at the end of the day, it does reveal an enormous amount about how the Chinese are doing business and the new rules and also some of the considerations that the Mozambican government is paying to the Chinese in terms of their relationship with outside powers. So, Kobus, go ahead and, and, and kind of give us a little bit more background and why you think this particular deal and what this story says about the Chinese in Africa. Yeah, this is a pretty this is a pretty complicated deal, so I hope I'm not screwing some of the details up. But um, as far as I understand, Rio Tinto had um, made a deal with the, with the Mozambican government to to it was about a four billion dollar deal um, to mine coal in a quite a, a, a remote rural province. And part of the deal was that they would then get access to the to the Zambezi River um, in order to move all of this coal to a to a coal-fired power plant and then a harbour down down the river. Now, in order to do that, um, they, they were going to use barges, and in order to do that, they needed to dredge the river. Now, you have to keep in mind that the Zambezi River is this majestic, magnificent, incredible river. Um, you know, kind of that, what of the most, one of the biggest rivers in Africa, and it connects not only Mozambique to the sea, but it connects Malawi to the sea via Mozambique. Um, so, um, the, at the same time, there was a, a rival bid uh, um, funded by the Chinese Export Import Bank for uh, a hydroelectric power comp- uh, hydroelectric power plant in the Zambezi River. Um, and in the end, um, the, the, the power of China, the historical power of China and Mozambique, plus at the same time cooperation between China and the Brazilian um, mining company Vale, ended up booting out the, the, the Australians. And they, you know, after the, the Mozambican government nibbled around the deal for a while, they suddenly they, they let it be known that um, that. Rio Tinto didn't get the deal, and what they're rather going to do is to go to go ahead with the Chinese hydroelectric um, project, and at the same time support a, a deal with Vale to also build a rail project to, um, you know, kind of so instead of using a barge down the river, you know, kind of system that the Australians wanted to do, they're getting a rail system and a hydroelectric plant. Well, let me, Tend, I want to get your feedback on this, but let me read you a quote from Australia's Financial Review newspaper. And, and again, the, we don't really want to focus too much on the specifics of the deal because that's not what, to us, is the most interesting thing. What's the most interesting thing here is what it says about the way that Chinese are doing business in Africa. And here's something. Let me just read a paragraph 
uh, from the Australian Financial Review at AFR.com. You can search it under Rio's Cold Dream and Fortune Sold Down a River. So they say, quote, Rio somehow missed China's burgeoning influence. In some ways, the Chinese influence is opaque and leaves behind the doors of corrupt ministers and officials in this rapidly developing country, uh, Mozambique. In other ways, its presence is all too obvious. In the Chinese cranes that are everywhere in Maputo, where new modern buildings replace the more gracious remnants of Portuguese architecture. Yet such has been the pace of recent Chinese investment that this physical manifestation may have been less obvious in 2010. So the rules of the game tend and I have changed. And a lot of governments do not understand it, and it appears that even in the corporate sector they don't understand it. What are the rules that you see in terms of how the Chinese are behaving in Africa, or in, in cases like this in Mozambique? Well, I think it's very difficult to sort of say what the rules are, because as, 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 as all of us know, like um, it, there are many different Chinese actors that are involved in, in Africa, private companies, uh, state-owned companies, um, and, and then Chinese uh, migrants. So it's really hard to say what um, China's uh, policy towards Africa is. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a, a single sort of Chinese policy towards Africa. I think what is happening here uh, with this deal I think uh, it shows the that with um, the 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 emergence of, of of developing countries like Brazil and China, this has given um, sort of um, African governments more agency in dealing with multinational companies and 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 other actors. So in this particular deal, I think what happened is that um, the Mozambican government sort of evaluated um, its relations with Brazil, its relations with China, and its relations with Rio Tinto, and it it decided that its relations with Brazil and its relations with China were more important. So I think this is something that is going to be seen um, in more African countries as as we go forward, because... um, African government's ability to to trade with other developing countries uh, gives them more uh, more options in, in in trade and 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 finance, so they don't um, have to accept um, conditions set upon them by by multinational companies or by the West. Cobus, let me uh, let me put another aspect of this, and and I may be wrong. It was a long, complicated article, so I may have misread this. So let me put that disclosure out there. But one of the other things that I that I that I saw in this was how Mozambique wanted to break the hold of South Africa in their terms of its influence in the country's energy sector, and 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 that's another trend that we see is that that countries are using uh, Chinese state-owned companies and private companies, as Tendai pointed out, um, to leverage against both the IMF, World Bank, and in the former colonial powers. Uh, so that was an interesting wrinkle. Did I read that correct? Yes, yes, you did. So, South Africa's ESCOM, which is a, a big parastatal uh, electricity provision company, pretty much powers the entire southern African grid. Um, and last week we talked about um, the Botswana government being being kind of uh, resentful against China because the, the Chinese electricity provision companies couldn't get them off ESCOM's grid. And, it's, and now um, what is going to happen with this uh, situation in Mozambique is that they're actually going to be selling South Africa power. Um, 
they're going to be selling ESCOM power. And, you know, the South African parasitical company is in a lot of trouble. Um, Southern Africa is seeing rolling blackouts, is seeing, you know, kind of all kinds of electricity problems. So there's a, a, a dire need for, for more electricity. Um, and at the same time, the, 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 the ironic thing about this is, you know, on the one hand, the Australians wanted to dredge, literally dredge the river and basically destroy the river. On the other hand, this hydroelectric company that the, that the Chinese Exxon Bank is now giving money for, before the, the Mozambicans tried to get money from, and now I have a list here, from the World Bank, the European Bank, the Nordic Bank, the African Bank, all of them said no, because a hydroelectric dam uh, project in that that part of the river would be environmentally too damaging. So it's not. This is not a happy environmental story. The river seems to be pretty much, you know, kind of doomed anyway. Um, but what what you know, it, it happens to now be particularly doomed by hydropower, not by coal mining. Um, you know, kind of, and thanks to Chinese investments. But you know, kind of, you can see how for for southern African countries, the need to to just get more electricity that everything. Tendai, does does the fact that the Chinese, you know, their their part in this deal and and the way that Mozambique handled it without any transparency at all. And that seems to really have pissed off the Australians and pissed off Rio Tinto was this was all done in the back channels. Does that bother you or is that just the way that business is done in places like Mozambique and Zimbabwe and it's just it's part of the new set of rules that we have to get that get used to that transparency is really a western concept. Uh, and when you talk about doing business in Africa, certainly in China, um, opaqueness is preferred. I don't think that um, the the business transactions that Western companies are conducting in Africa or in China are particularly transparent either. So I think this is just the way business is done everywhere. I think um, professors like, uh, like people who have been researching sort of... Um, Africa's trade with other countries, um, African countries' trade with with other countries, have found it really difficult to uh, find out about um, deals and transactions uh, between U.S. companies and African countries, Chinese companies and African countries, just because that's the way that um, all of these companies from different countries conduct business. I think it's not it's not anything um, sort of surprising. Yeah, and, and to your to bring up an interesting point, and I guess one of the themes of the show today is 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 Western hypocrisy. Um, really, to for example, if you look at the former colonial powers, from namely the French and the British, um, to, 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 to suggest that they have supported transparency over the years in their business dealings with their former colonies in Africa is just ridiculous. Um, more importantly, and more recently, to suggest that you know the World Bank and the IMF are, are transparent organizations is also equally ridiculous. I mean, you know, the bureaucracy that one has to go through to to get data out of either one, and I have firsthand experience with this, uh, is is my numbing and that's a form of, of opaque of opaqueness as well opacity so uh, so again interesting kind of perspectives here uh, you know the point is on this particular story is that there is a new set of rules to Tendai's point we don't actually know what those rules are because there's so many different actors uh, but it's not the established order anymore it cost the the head of Rio his job they completely misread the situation uh, we it'll be interesting to see how many more governments and companies continue to do this uh, and, and learn from these kind of situations. Uh, you know, Kobus, final thoughts on this on this story for you in terms of what your takeaway was. Um, is, is this a new world order and, and Rio 
CEO was was a victim, or are, am I putting too much on this? No, I think I think the the key to to my making our way into this new world order and actually to to understand it better is to look much harder at shareholding, because one of one of the interesting details on all of this in, in this long you know kind of multi-page article, what I didn't realize is that that Rio Tinto's second largest shareholder is the state-owned Chinese state-owned company Chinalco. <laughs> so to the to which extent Rio really is an Australian company fighting the Chinese. I mean, you know, when you when you start looking at shareholding, it becomes so much more complicated. Interesting. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Each week at the end of the show, we kind of try to drive you towards the various Twitter feeds, blogs, podcasts, you know, you name all the social media that we're kind of creating every week. So you can kind of continue to stay on top of the topics, continue to join the discussions and be a part of the discussion. Uh, Tendai, in addition to writing excellent articles for us on the China africaproject.com website uh, where else can people follow you and what you're thinking and doing you can also follow me on the on our facebook page and you can also follow me on twitter at te musakwa which is at t-e-m-u-s-a-k-w-a Excellent. And uh, again, Tendai does some really wonderful writing and translations of Chinese social media, which are very poorly understood by the outside world. It's something that uh, Tendai and myself are going to start doing more of, uh, doing translations of Chinese language content and also start to create uh, Chinese content to start bringing this conversation into the Chinese social media space. So that'll be an upcoming project. We're going to open up a Weibo account uh, to begin with. So we'll, we'll keep you in, uh, in, in, uh, up to date on that. Uh, Kobus, uh, if people want to follow you on, uh, on 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 the social on the social web, where should they find you? Um, I'm active on our Facebook page. Um, this has been a, a bit of a quiet week for me because I was crazy busy, but um, I, I'm, yeah, I try to, to post daily on our Facebook page, and then I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. Wonderful. And our Facebook page is Facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. Uh, we're all there, and you see that we put our names next to our posts so that. Uh, you can talk to us directly. So if you've got questions, you can post on our wall. Um, you can also follow our Facebook page on any one of our mobile apps. We've got mobile apps both for iOS devices that are available in the Apple iTunes Store. It's free. Uh, and you can follow our Twitter feeds, uh, our Facebook page, uh, our blog that Tendai writes for, and, and so much more. And then also it's in Google Play. Uh, if you want to listen to the podcast, it's on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, everywhere it needs to be. And, of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter. I'm at eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. We'll be back again next Sunday with another wrap and review of the week's events in China in Africa. And until then, have a wonderful week.